17th. On the 17th, we're going to have a healing service. And um, it's, it's going to be kind of the culmination of the whole journey. And we're going to deck this place out. Um, and we're going to assemble the staff, the elders, our prayer teams, our care teams. And the invitation is just going to be uh, wherever you are, whatever you've done, however you've lived, whatever's brought you to this place, we just want to invite you to bring your sexuality back under the blessing of God. And um, because tonight we're going to talk about some heavy stuff and, and the fear uh, as we hold out the standard is that people just get pushed away or full of shame or whatever and, uh, and decide that they just have blown it too much, they've sinned too big, and that is, at all, that is so not the message of Jesus. And so um, we want to spend some time talking about that. So that's where the next four weeks, so four weeks from tonight, we will be uh, praying for healing and just seeing where we go. After that, we'll take, uh, we'll take some time off. Maybe we'll do another conversation like this Sunday night, someday in the future, but that will be the end of the song of Solomon's Sunday night study, all right? Uh, you can always text in questions. We encourage you to do that. I want to follow up from uh, one of the questions that we got last week that I have been um, thinking about a ton. And <laughs> I want to talk more about the issue of gay marriage because uh, it is such a pressing issue uh, of our day. And, and I think there's, I don't know, I, I, have you ever left a conversation and went, oh, I should have said that, I should have said that, I should have said that. And, and that's kind of how I left last Sunday night going, you know, I, I'd really like... Uh, to just add a couple of things to that conversation. Because when you talk about gay marriage, I think at least as I stand up here on a stage in front of you and now put online forever, um, you're answering from lots of different perspectives. And so I want to go through four different perspectives uh, that you have to wrestle through in answering a question like that. The first one is that most importantly, I'm a disciple of Jesus. That means the goal uh, of my life isn't uh, self-fulfillment or uh, success or prosperity. The goal of my life is to become more and more like this Jesus and to participate more and more in his work in the world. As a result, I view the Bible as authoritative. Um, I think that properly and honestly interpreted, it speaks deep and freeing truth to us. And as a result of my discipleship, uh, I absolutely feel that God's standard in the scriptures is that marriage is one man, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. And equally passionately, I am convinced that we are utterly and absolutely all sinners in need of redemption, and we resist any pharisaical scaling of sin where some sins are bigger than others. We just want to say from the outset, no, we, we, I believe, as a disciple of Jesus, I've listened to uh, some of the really good arguments um, on the other side. I've listened to YouTube presentations that are very passionate by people uh, who claim to be Christians and who argue uh, for the significance, the reality, the vibrancy of gay marriage. I get it. I've heard it. I at least have done my best to try to understand. And I still believe that God's ideal uh, is one man, one woman, one lifetime, one marriage. And I realize that some construe that as hate speech and some construe that as intolerance. And, and, and I think because the church has done such a horrible job on some of these issues, I get why they say those things. 
But at the same time, if we're consistently applying the ethic of the Bible, then we speak out against inappropriate divorce, and we speak out against gossip and slander, and we speak out against greed, and we speak out against pride. The problem isn't, in my view, now you may disagree, the problem isn't uh, that we have an unrealistic standard. The problem is we inconsistently apply it. And can I get an amen on this? Often the American church spends the least amount of time condemning the sins it itself is guilty of. Okay, so maybe, maybe there are six verses, six passages that deal with uh, homosexuality and lesbianism. Maybe, but there are 2,000 that deal with wealth and poverty. And so if you're in an American church and somebody is, is preaching to help the poor, they're automatically branded liberal. So we live in a, in a church society where it's totally acceptable to spend 98 to 99% of your income on yourself. And the Bible spends 2,000 verses warring against injustice and poverty and hoarding. But we'd rather talk about the six verses somewhere else. So for me as a disciple of Jesus, I I view the scriptures as authoritative. I believe that's the ideal that's presented. But equally passionately, I hasten to add, as a disciple of Jesus, we're all fallen. We have all fallen short. And because of that, we're all equally summoned to the grace of the Lord Jesus. There is no ranking scale at work here. So So I answer first as a disciple. The second way I talk about this issue is I talk about it as an ambassador of reconciliation. Now, do you understand that an ambassador of reconciliation, this comes from 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, from now on, we regard nobody, anybody. We re- he says, we regard... I was just going to do a double negative, and that wasn't going to work. We don't regard anybody from a worldly point of view. Don't check this. I'm sure I just messed it up. But instead, <laughs> we view everybody through the lens of Christ, right? If anyone is a new creation, uh, Christ has come, the old is gone, the new has come. I'm totally butchering this passage, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Here's the idea, though. Doggone it. An ambassador of reconciliation. Oh, shoot. I'm just going to read the thing. <laughs> yeah. I have it memorized. No, this is one of my favorite passages that I clearly am butchering. 2 Corinthians 5. Here it is. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And what's that? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Now, as a witness to the reality of Jesus, when we shake our fists at culture with venom and anger, when we just offer public proclamation classifying whole groups of people as untouchable and unredeemable, we are violating what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation. If in Christ God won't count people's sins against them, then who are we, the church, to count people's sins against them? 
If in other words, now that doesn't mean we don't speak truth, but it simply means that we forsake the judgment, condemnation, and labeling that is so common in the church in America. Because our goal as disciples is to what? Make more disciples. And so often we conduct ourselves in a manner that is simply not worthy of the name Jesus. End of story. And for that, if you are here and part of the gay community, I sincerely apologize. We have not loved you as Jesus loves you. We have not treated you with the respect that Jesus would treat you with. And we have not shown the grace that Jesus would show you. End of story. No excuse. We'll let people who have multiple marriages show up in our churches. But if two guys come in holding hands, we got to have a policy on this one. Right? And you just go, well, I know what we're saying, but last time I checked, getting yourself cleaned up happened after you followed Jesus, not before. So you are allowed to be in process. Right? So I answer as a disciple. I answer as an agent of reconciliation. I answer as a pastor. And Paul... I will get this line right. In 1 Corinthians, is dealing with sexual sin in the church. And you know what he says, 1 Corinthians 5? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? I judge those inside the church. So as a pastor, I'm far more interested in all of the double standards that exist in the church than I am about shouting and throwing rocks at people who don't follow Jesus and expecting people who don't follow Jesus to live like they did. You understand that? Here's my rule. Christians should act like Christ. Non-Christians should act like non-Christians. Right? So as a pastor... I don't spend my day worrying about all the bad people out there. I spend my day worrying about all the bad people right here. Right? Seriously. I mean, Jesus tells us, yes, you can judge each other, but here's how you do it. If I see a sin in you, I have to recognize that it's a dust particle compared to the two by four in my own eye. And with great repentance and humility, admitting my own propensity to sin, if invited to do so, I may speak into the life of brothers and sisters. So yes, we discern. Yes, we hold truth. Yes, in the community of believers, we have kingdom conversations. But far too often, we just beat people over the head as if they should be followers of Jesus before they follow Jesus. So let's clean our house, shall we? Let's deal with the immorality in our midst before we worry about everyone else's. I mean, if we want to outlaw sin, then let's start with whatever we're guilty of. Are we stepping on toes right now? Because as a pastor, I'm concerned about God's people. As a disciple, I'm concerned about following Jesus wholeheartedly. As an agent of reconciliation, I'm I'm concerned with making Jesus beautiful. And I don't have to work very hard because he is. And lastly, I answer this question as a citizen. In our particular kingdom of the world, I am asked my opinion as to how government should run. Right? So I am utterly for people voting. I am utterly for people voting their conscience. 
I am utterly against equating their conscience with the kingdom of God. And I'm utterly against conducting our citizenship in a way that contradicts our witness. Can I get an amen? So, when we talk about gay marriage, everyone wants to talk about the state of the world and the darkness, and I I just want to go, well, if we're such big fans of marriage, then let's work on it in here. See, Jesus came to not just shake his fist to stuff, but to create something better. And I believe we've done such a horrible job tolerating sin in the American church that we've lost any prophetic voice to speak to this issue. It doesn't mean we shouldn't. It just means that we have to be very, very honest about our own shortcomings first. So let's talk about sex. Song of Solomon's chapter four. Boom, we just did that. That just happened. (laughs) Now, we're gonna spend, I don't know, 30 minutes Where's the one gal that was sitting over here that didn't want me to teach much and do all Q&A? She's going to be happy again tonight. So let's do Song of Songs. Now, if you have been paying attention, and by the way, we're so glad you're here. Even if you don't agree with all of this, we're so glad you're here. We really are. And I've gotten emails from a number of you that think a bunch of this is nuts, and yet there's wisdom and there's something happening and you're here and I'm just so proud of you that you would have courage. Uh, to show up at a place like this, to have a conversation like this. So thank you. Thanks for trusting us. So if you've been following along, this couple, this 3,000-year-old love poem, he and she and they, kind of interacting back and forth, covering a wide range of subjects, right? Last week, they, they talked about the idea of a wedding, and so we just looked at, at what, what actually a wedding is and a marriage is from a biblical perspective, And so we've been taking these snapshots from Song of Songs and using them to launch into different passages of the Bible. We'll do that again tonight. Bless you. But Song of Songs, chapter 4. We're going to talk about six aspects of godly sex tonight. And uh, these are interesting. This this section, because it comes right after the wedding, some think this is a, a glimpse into their first night together. Don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly would be appropriate. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 1. He is speaking. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil, her wedding veil, are doves. They speak of peace. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Just awesome. (laughs) Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. She has clean teeth. Each tooth has its twin. Not one of them is alone. She's got teeth. Man, marry a woman who has teeth. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temple behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. 
built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Uh, In other words, she's regal is the idea. She's dignified in the way she carries herself. Now, the first thing you see in this is that uh, sex, blessed sex, is romantic. And, And I know we all know this, but doggone it. As a guy in a relationship, uh, 13 years in, my wife and I just had a conversation about it this week. She's like, you know, we still need to, we need to date more. You need to still pursue me. It's not just enough that we're married. We can too easily become business partners. And so that first night, notice he doesn't, he doesn't touch her right away. Instead, he begins at the top of her head and works his way down her body, commenting on every little bit. And remember, this is the woman at the beginning of the book, so don't stare at me. Well, he's staring at her. And he's commenting on how lovely, 14 times in this poem, he calls her beautiful. He romances her. He woos her. Right? This isn't the language of mathematics or science. This is the language of romance and passion. And so he just comments on every single aspect. Next. Your breasts are like two fawns. Like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Now, this was one of my favorite memory verses when I was in youth group. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've watched Animal Planet. I, I get twin fawns of a gazelle. I understand what that is. But I have no idea how breasts are like that at all. So, so we think... We think the image here is one of gentleness, of tenderness, not one of pawing and groping and demeaning and demanding, but one of romancing and gentleness. Godly sex is not only romantic, but it's gentle, it's kind, it's thoughtful, it's slow, right? It's um, so much of, of, of chemistry, and married folks, you can just say amen to this, so much of chemistry in marriage is the negotiation between a woman saying yes or no and a man saying yes or no at the same time, you know? It's like my wife will say to me all the time, don't wait until 10.30, right? Because I have to be up at 6 with Seth. Don't wait until 10.30, which I will often do, you know? It's like the kids are down, Monday night football's over. (laughs) Honey? And so, so the idea is that there is a, a gentleness and a kindness here. He keeps saying, until the day breaks, verse 6, and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. And you can just imagine what he's saying there. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is what? No flaw in you. One of the things my wife and I did when we were first married, and a, and a really godly older man told me to do this, was to um, have my wife comment on her body and to say the parts that she thought were cool and the parts that she didn't like. And I would imagine most women have those answers pretty readily available. And, and one of the things I realized is that standing naked in front of somebody is one of the most vulnerable acts 
that you could ever engage in. And so here she is early in the book. She's a bit insecure about the way that she looks, and certainly dudes are too. And he takes that insecurity, he wraps it in praise, and he just affirms every part. I I feel like part of my job as my wife's husband is to affirm those parts that she worries about. And, And I don't have to struggle to do that. I don't have to make up things. I just talk to her like she were a pomegranate, and it all works out great. But one of the most devastating things, guys, look at me, one of the most devastating things you can do when your spouse stands before you so vulnerably is to be critical of their appearance. You can just do massive, massive damage. And if porn is your standard, no real woman will ever measure up. And so one of the reasons why we wage war against porn is so that flesh and blood stirs us and not just empty pixels on a screen. And so the sex described here is romantic, it's gentle, but it's life-giving. It's life-affirming. It's life-uniting. It's the one place in the entire planet where warts and all you are delighted in. I mean, it's such a powerful, powerful picture Verse 9, he continues. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Now, how would he know that? What's this called? Oh, co- oh now you're going to get all quiet on me. What's that called? French kissing. And really, that's a lie because France wasn't invented yet. This is Hebrew kissing. Okay? I mean, I, why did the French get credit for that? So, sex is, and, and think about it. Sex is, is unbelievably sensuous. In no other act... Do you lose track of time and are your, all, all your senses are involved? Your ability to speak and to hear and to see and to touch and to feel and to smell. I mean, I mean it is, it is a, one of those activities where you just lose track of time. It is uh, the way God designed it for embodied beings. It is simply the capturing of all that embodiedness means and all of the senses So he describes her talking about smell and sight and touch and taste. And so, you know, there used to be in Christian circles just the idea that the only reason you'd have sex was to have children. And certainly that's central. But you also have sex for the sheer enjoyment of sex, the sheer enjoyment of your spouse, And that that's okay, that there is this, we want to go to war against the angel syndrome, right? If you remember from the first week that just said, well, we don't really have desires and we we don't really want release and we really don't have these sorts of feelings. It's not true. To be fully human is to be sexual. And so God designed sex to be this totally full-bodied experience. Then he says, verse 12, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. 
You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. He's commenting on her her purity. You're protected, in other words. With choice fruits and henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree and myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. All right, he's just commenting. As they battled the foxes, now this garden is in bloom. And then she says, and this is the best line right here. Verse 16, she speaks. So he, he, all he's done is romance her. And then she says, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Now, uh, this, of course, is an invitation to go out for coffee. <laughs> no! I mean, and, and, and actually, it's even a bit more explicit in Hebrew. And so, so, if great sex for a woman is romantic, great sex for a man is when she's responsive. And so, after all of this romance, she finally says, here's this gift to you. And very appropriately... The curtain closes kind of at that point and then opens back up. Chapter 5, verse 1. He speaks. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Now, right, right. No, no elbowing him. <laughs> He's over here. I love it. I would too. That's a memory verse right there for you. (laughs) So nine times he uses the pronoun my. And he's not speaking as if he owns her. He's speaking as if they are now one. And so what you get in chapter four leading into chapter five, interestingly, after kind of a wedding that's described, is this couple romancing and life-giving and gentle and passionate and responsive and playful and sensuous. And then appropriately, and this is the thing that's so amazing about, I think, this book, is it's never pornographic, it's never vulgar, it's never profane, but it is absolutely sexual. To say there is a place in the kingdom for this. Now, the most important part of sexuality is the part that's hinted at in that last verse, when they become one flesh. So I want to spend a little time on the whole one flesh thing. So let's go to the book of? Let's go to Genesis. (laughs) Now, we're going to get into some funky stuff, as if we already hadn't. But you may not agree with some of this, and that is so okay. The goal isn't that you agree with me. The goal is that you wrestle with these things yourself. And that in community, you come to your own conclusions on these. Far too many of us, are just, we just simply swallow whatever culture is telling us without really running it through the grid of what life of, like, the life following Jesus should look like. And so I, I just want to make some theological points. The Song of Songs makes the poetic points, but Genesis makes the theological points. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 we should have this memorized by now. Then God said, I, let us 
Make mankind humanity in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, who is us there? Let us make humanity in our plural image. And there are all kinds of guesses about who the us is. Is this God with a, a crew of angels? Is this God speaking to a heavenly court? of angelic beings? Is this a glimpse of the Trinity? Uh, But there's actually, there are actually some scholars that think the us-ness is the male and female-ness of God, the plurality of God, because the us makes singular humans male and female. So God doesn't make a monolithic being to represent him. He makes a plural being to represent him. And so there's some scholars that speculate that the us here, at least as it's unpacked in the next verse, the us is the male and femaleness of God. Not gender, not sex, but the traits. Now, if you don't buy that, that is totally fine. But notice verse 27. So God created humanity singular in his own image. In the image of God, he created them plural. Male and female, he created them plural. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, a couple of things. Number one, there is utterly and absolutely gender equality between men and women. Would you agree? Yep, both are image bearers. But secondly, both are needed to reflect the divine image. This is the the critical point for our purposes tonight. The image of God isn't fully reflected in the male, and the image of God isn't fully reflected in the female. It's only in them both that the image is reflected. Now, this becomes really important in chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, verse 18. Right? This is all review. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And remember, suitable helper, um, Ezra Konegdo, is somebody who's alike opposite him. Somebody that is equal to him, but somebody who is enough alike him that they fit together, but enough different than him that they fit together, if that makes sense. Which it totally does. I can sell on your faces. But for Adam, verse 20, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the side of the man, and he brought her to the man. And remember, even last week we said that some of the rabbis see this phrase, he brought her to the man, is kind of the first wedding. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, from this is the idea that we've been talking about male and female, but now all of a sudden it's man and wife, so that marriage... Oh, by the way, you remember those four kids that walked out last week? Evidently, they were going to go watch Walking Dead. And, and no, no, let me just say... That's a great reason to walk out. But there are things like DVRs. Squirrel. It's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So marriage, 
marriage. We talk the idea is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not a business arrangement. It is a covenant. And because it's covenantal, God uses it as an illustration of his relationship to his people. That was the big point last week. Now, in that covenant, the male and the female are to be united together. The the Hebrew there means bound together, glued together, and they're to become one flesh. Now, this is where it gets super interesting. Go, if you would, to Genesis 5. Super interesting. All right, Genesis 5, check this out. Now, if I lose you, we've got Q&A. All right, this is the account of Adam's family line. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, Adam is used two different ways. Adam, okay, in Hebrew, is used as a generic term for all humanity, and Adam is also used as the name for this guy. Okay, so he's singular, and it's used to describe human beings in general. So notice this. When God created mankind, singular, he made them, plural, in the likeness of God. So evidently, the likeness of God includes themness, plurality. He created them male and female and blessed them, and then he named them Adam when they were created. Now, not everyone agrees with this, but... In this, you take this passage, combine it with Genesis 2, combine it with Genesis 1. Some, some think that what has happened is when God created the first Adam, the first Adam was androgynous. And the first Adam went to sleep and male and female were created. Two beings There was one flesh, the Adam, now we're two, male and female. So sex is the two, male and female, becoming one flesh again and reconstituting the original Adam. In other words, Adam and Eve came from one flesh, so when they reunited one flesh, they're reconstituting what they came from. Are you with me on this? Now... You don't have to buy it. This, nothing hinges on this except to say one fleshness is the key to the, to the Bible's sexual ethic for the rest of the story. So, Adam and Eve. So, so the question is the Adam, the first being. What, was he male or was he female? Some think he was male. Some think he was androgynous. And then he, the God takes from the side whatever, to create the female. So now there was, there used to be one flesh, but now there's two. So the invitation of sex is for the two to become one flesh again. All right, you with me on this? Now, let's say that's true. And that the glory and image and likeness of God is reunified when male and female come together. Now you begin to get why it is that the sexual ethic of the scriptures is that sex isn't just a physical thing, it's a one flesh thing. And one flesh doesn't just have to do with the physical part of it, it has to do with two people joining themselves fully to each other. So they're literally bound together when they have sex. Now nobody tells us this in health class, right? 
What they tell us is that this is what boys are like and this is what girls are like. And, and some boys like boys and some girls like girls and some people are kind of bisexual and, and it's just kind of this big old melting pot, right? And, and I totally, totally understand some of the reasoning behind approaching sexuality that way from a public school point of view. But the piece that's missing in that whole conversation is this idea of one fleshness, that two people are joined together in a soulish way. See, for all of our sophistication and for all of our sex is not a big deal, it is still the biggest deal we got. It's still what we talk about, what we joke about, what drives our arts and our advertising, our movies and our music, right? For all of our sophistication, we just can't get away from it. We know there is a difference between a married couple waking up after making love and a one-night stand between two anonymous strangers. We know there's a difference. And so all the scriptures do is to say sex is good and sex is powerful. Those are the two declarations. Anything with such power should be treated carefully. That's it. And here's, what, here's the amazing thing. I was, I was reading this week that there is, this, uh, there is a whole bunch of science now sitting behind the idea that we bond with people we sleep with. So I'm reading a book called Hooked. And this book is written by neuroscientists. And I don't know if it's a Christian book. There's nothing Christian in it. It's just purely brain science. And I want to read to you some quotes from the book. All right, now I have three pages of quotes. So... I know, it's going to be awful. So, let me jump. Okay, there are three neurochemicals released in a sexual relationship. The first one is dopamine. Say dopamine. Dopamine is wonderful. It is the rush of I feel alive. It is the reward chemical. It is when you do something thrilling and risky and it works. It's the rush that comes from that. Addictive drugs target dopamine receptors. Okay, so dopamine is, is the rush that comes from engaging in something thrilling, something exciting. It's the rush that comes from looking at porn. It's the rush that comes from viewing an affair. Dopamine is totally values neutral, meaning it rewards whatever you think is thrilling and risky, whether it's good for you or not. Dopamine... Oh, it's really, listen to this. Studies with animals have shown that almost all addictive drugs increase dopamine reward signals. Sex is one of the strongest generators of the dopamine reward. Now, there's another neurochemical called oxytocin. Ladies, this is for you. This is the feminine bonding chemical. All right, now I'm just quoting these people because I don't understand anything. But here's what they say. Oxytocin is released into your body, ladies, for, at, at four occasions. Intimate touching, sexual intercourse, the onset of labor, and nursing. And it is the chemical that causes you to bond with your baby or your lover. That's the chemical. Make sense? You don't care. With sexual intercourse and orgasm, the woman's brain is flooded with oxytocin, causing her to desire the same kind of contact again and again. Now, here's what they argue. Bonding is real and almost like the adhesive effect of glue. 
A powerful connection that cannot be undone without great emotional pain. Oxytocin is values neutral. It's an involuntary process that cannot distinguish between a one-night stand and a lifelong soulmate. Oxytocin can cause a woman to bond to a man even during what was expected to be a short-term sexual relationship. Guys, we don't get out of bonding. Vasopressin is our bonding. They call it the monogamy molecule. And here's the idea. It's, it's released when we bond with children and when we have sex with a woman. Sex is an intense experience of connectedness. When a male engages in sex, vasopressin is released, bonding him to his partner and also stimulating the desire for more sex. And all the married men said, <laughs> nothing, evidently. Most important, the synapses that govern decisions about sex in both the male and female brains are strengthened in ways that make it easier to choose to have sex in the future, while synapses that govern sexual restraint are weakened and deteriorate. Engaging in sex creates a chain reaction of brain activities that lead to the desire for more sex and greater levels of attachment between two people. In spite of the brevity of short-term sexual encounters, research indicates that bonding does occur even when a couple only has engaged in sex a single time. Now again, I don't understand this, but I quote it to you because it is so fascinatingly backs up this idea of one fleshness. And this is where it gets crazy right here. When a couple is involved in even a short-term relationship and breaks up and then each moves on to a new sexual partner, they are breaking the oxytocin and vasopressin bonds that have formed. This severing of the bond explains the painful emotion people often feel when they break up. Now here's, here's the point. In addition, they cannot know that they actually are seriously damaging a bonding mechanism they are born with. In other words, you can short-circuit the effects of this bonding, and in so doing, you damage your capacity to bond in the future. The evidence is that when this sex-bonding breakup cycle is repeated a few or many times, even when the bonding was short-lived, damage is done to the important built-in ability to develop significant and meaningful connections to other human beings. This, this quote just kills me. The inability to bond after multiple sex encounters is almost like tape that loses its stickiness after being applied and removed multiple times. So these aren't Christians. These aren't theologians. These are brain researchers. The individual goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold and gel so that it eventually begins accepting that sexual pattern as normal. For most people, this brain pattern seems to interfere with the development of the neurological circuits necessary for long-term relationships. Taken as a whole, these complicated processes offer a compelling pattern. They are designed to lead towards and strengthen long-term monogamous relationships, supporting and reinforcing family structures. One last. Oh, this is, this is horrible. When the breaking of relationships occurs, it is felt in the same brain centers that feel physical pain and can actually be seen on brain scans. The bonding process can also be short-circuited by a couple progressing immediately to sex. People involved in this behavior either don't think about the risk or believe they can disconnect their sexual involvement from the rest of who they are. 
we have shown this is impossible. Thus, unconscious damage also occurs because it violates the integrity of personhood. So, when you get to the New Testament teaching on sex, it's really ambiguous and fuzzy. But among you, there must not be any, even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Seems pretty fuzzy. 1 Corinthians 6, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise you also. He's saying, therefore, your body matters. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and he quotes Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in body. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Marriage, uh, Hebrews 13. Marriage 13. Marriage should be honored by all in the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Mm, these are fuzzy. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like those who do not know God. So, let's talk about these words. Lust, it's the imagining something that if it were to occur in real life would be considered sinful, that's sin. If you're dwelling and fantasizing about something that were to actually happen in real life, if that real happening would be sinful, then the dwelling on it is too. Impurity, we've read that word, or in older translations, it uses the word debauchery. Sounds way more fun than impurity. <laughs> it's arousing desires in another that cannot be filled in a holy way. And then lastly, the big word that Paul uses, immorality or fornication. It's the Greek word pornea. And I get this question all the time. So where in the Bible does it say you can't have premarital sex? Right? Because Paul uses the immorality and the, the purity and the debauchery and the fornication. I mean, he doesn't say you get a premarital sex. The problem is, pornea, used 55 times in his letters, refers to any sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Period. It, he's really clear about this. And so, ladies and gentlemen, here's the biblical view of sex. Are you ready? Oh, this is awesome. It's all sex. And it's all reserved for marriage. Thank you very much. Good night. See you later. Good luck. Good luck. Holy cow. Now, does anyone else hear all of that and just go, whoa? I mean, let's just, first of all, state the really obvious point. That there isn't one of us that can say, right, we've been perfect in those definitions. Agreed? Not one of us. So we're not a community that's just going to start pegging each other with moral judgments from a position of superiority. But let's not let our imperfection water down the clear teaching of the scriptures. That sex forms a one-flesh relationship.
And what happens when it's ripped out of a one flesh relationship is that you bond and you rip and 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 you are hurting your own capacity to experience the fullness and joy of sex. That is the biblical teaching. That the only thing powerful enough to harness the power of sexuality is an exclusive, lifelong relationship. Why? Because it can do such damage. Nobody looks at the electrician who comes into your house and says, hey, don't put your finger in the sockets or else you'll be electrocuted. Nobody looks at the electrician and goes, man, that was really unfair. And so similarly, the warnings about sexual activity are validated by everyone who breaks them. Do you understand this? I mean, if you want proof of the wisdom of God, look at our society and tell me we're doing great. Did the sexual revolution bring freedom or slavery? Did the sexual revolution bring the emancipation of women or their further objectification? I mean, I, I, I just think if you come into it unbiased and you look at our world and ask, are, are the sexual ethics that the world offers us, how are they working out? But if you're like me, I always want to discover I always want to discover the boundaries myself. It's like the rich person that says, hey, money doesn't solve everything. Well, I'd like to learn that <laughs> as a rich person, right? And so, so, you know, some of us hear this and are like, well, okay, so that's what the Bible says. And, and I, had, I used to coach football. And I would have kids say all the time, well, I'm going to sleep around now and then I'm going to marry a virgin. And... And then I'll get serious about religion someday. Because isn't that like high school and college, right? You just kind of sow your oats, you experiment, you find yourself, and then you get settled down. And the problem with that way of thinking is that every act forms you and shapes you into a certain kind of person. And there's no guarantee if you live in open rebellion long enough that you'll be the kind of person at the end of that who will even want Jesus at that point. I mean, the ancients said it great. The reward of obedience is obedience, and the reward of sin is sin. And so, on the one hand, we want to speak words of truth. That the casual playboy, maxim, hooking up culture that is just part of American culture is doing real damage. And we want to speak words of grace. That the church has either been silent or harsh in its judgment. And as a result, all of this has gone underground. And so we just want to simply proclaim grace and truth. We've all fallen short and we're all summoned by the grace of Jesus. His kindness leads to repentance. To follow him. Regardless of orientation, action, thinking, anything to abandon all other life we could find elsewhere, and to follow him. That's just true. Everyone's loved, everyone's lost, everyone's welcome. So, what do we do with all of this information? Well, first, we disagree with those who simply say that sex is just another appetite like food or drink. We say, nope, there's something soulish about sexuality. There's something identity-driven. 
So when our gay brothers and sisters talk about their orientation, their identity as gay people, they're on to something that some evangelicals miss. You can't separate out sex from the rest of who you are. There's something there. Now, we would disagree and say your sexual orientation isn't the most important thing about you, but there is something in recognizing that sex isn't just the unity of physical parts. There's something soulish about it, something spirit about it. We would also disagree with those that see sex as just an animal passion, unbecoming of spiritual people. No, we're fully human, and it's a gift. It doesn't feel like a gift. It feels like a curse. You hit puberty back in the day. They were married at 14, 15, 16, 17, right? I had puberty at 12, got married at 29. So any of you that's sitting out there going, man, you don't know what it's like. I know what it's like. That's a long time in the wilderness. And some of you have lived there. Well, it is, right? And some of you know this. Some of you were there. And you're frustrated. I mean, I had a guy sit in my office and just, he was so angry at God for the desires. Why did God make me this way? And then tell me no. And it literally prevented him from following Jesus. That issue. So what do you say? So we disagree with those who say sex is just a natural appetite. Well, it is and it's not. There's something soulish to it. We disagree with those who say that sex is just an animal passion fitting only for the pagans but not appropriate to God's people. That's wrong, (laughs) thankfully. And we disagree with those that say that sex and the unimpeded freedom of sexual expression is central to self-fulfillment. That's just not true. That's not true. That's not true. So, we speak words of truth. That's the standard. We speak words of truth. We all fall short. We speak words of truth. Jesus has come to redeem, to renew, to restore We speak words of truth, repent, (laughs) and follow. Claim the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. No laughing. No laughing. This is church, young lady. This is church. (laughs) It's tough when you're in the front row. I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. What were we saying? Repent. Right in the middle of repent. But we speak words of grace. Look at me. The stories that have been shared, the questions that have been asked, there's not one of them that cannot be healed, rescued, and redeemed by Jesus. The thing I love about Jesus is that he was not a religious man. If by religious you mean he was interested in all of the rituals and the externals of faith. What Jesus did was so radically subversive. He took all of the trappings of religion and said, they're actually fulfilled in me. And so he would just go around touching people. Touch the unclean, touch the untouchable, forgive the immoral and the broken. And we just want to say he still does that. And so if you're here and you've fallen short like I have, there's grace. There's grace. 
His kindness leads us to repentance. There's grace. But certainly, certainly, after listening to all of that, it's woefully inappropriate for sexually broken people to shake their fist at other sexually broken people for just being broken in ways they're not. So we all have big two-by-fours in this room, right? And the invitation is to say, okay, ground is level at the foot of the cross, which means we're all welcome to come. So I would imagine this raises some questions. If you were inappropriately sexually active, how do you overcome the consequences of damaging your ability to respond, to bond to your spouse? Great, great question. This is what we're going to talk about healing night. Seriously, we're going to tell stories of people who've overcome just this. Listen, redemption is absolutely possible. We just want to beat up on the idea that you can live however you want, get married, and have utterly no consequences after that. No, no, no. You don't. That's not the way it works. Understand, there are consequences even if you don't feel them. That's all we're saying. We're not shaming you. Listen, the just say no campaign, the just wait campaign, you can't scare people into not having sex. You can't scare them. You have to inspire them to hold out for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so we, if you notice, we're not talking about STDs and the risks of pregnancy, and those things are true. But we're trying to inspire people. No laughing. We're trying to inspire people. That's why we lead with Song of Songs to the beauty and the majesty of two very imperfect people renewing the covenant of marriage again and again and again and again. And so, is it possible for you to be healed and restored? Of course it is. One of my favorite verses is in the book of Joel. I quoted it last week. After a big judgment of locusts, which, you know, we all don't want locusts, A big judgment of locusts, God simply says to the people, God can redeem and restore what the locusts have taken. So I absolutely believe you have not damaged yourself beyond repair. You absolutely have not done so. But we want to beat up on the idea that you can just live however you're living, become married, become a new person, and there are no consequences whatsoever. Well, that's not true either. Next question. Great one. Does the bonding and ripping of premarital and extramarital sex encounters apply to sex with self? Masturbation, is it equally as damaging to the oneness of the married body? Oh, that is a great question. Now, I don't think that the one fleshness is the reason that we we worry about masturbation. I, I mean, I don't think you bond with self. I do think you train your body to purely engage for orgasm. Because that's all masturbation is, right? It's not like there's foreplay, romance. I mean, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? I have friends who tell me about this. (laughs) And and so, and and so very literally, uh, and and I really do have a friend um, who uh, had, 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 uh, oh, how do I say this? Um, he had uh, premature issues in marriage because he had been so given over to masturbation that, and he'd ripped the sex act out of its relational context that he just trained himself 
to go for that moment and not do anything else. And so when he came together with his wife, he wasn't, the, the training of his body took over. And the first several years of their marriage were really unfulfilling uh, because he'd given himself over that way. And so, like we said earlier, the Bible doesn't say, don't masturbate, but the Bible doesn't say, go for it either. Wisdom says, I think, and some disagree, that there can be times it is appropriate sexual release. If it's, if it's between that and sleeping around, well, then do that. Because certainly the social, biological, and uh, spiritual consequences are different. But at the same time, we have to realize, and, and this is what's so interesting. I got sent an article, I don't, maybe you, some of you read it, about kids, uh, youth in Japan who are stop, they're stopping having sex because they simply don't want to engage in the romantic and relational entanglements of a real relationship, and so they settle for porn. See, that's what masturbation does. It, it allows you to stay in control. It allows you to be the boss. And it robs sexual intimacy from 1 Corinthians 7, which is, husband, your body is not your own. Use it to delight your wife. Wife, your body's not your own. Use it to delight your husband. And so I think that we can be, make too much of a big deal about masturbation, but we can also make too much of a little deal about masturbation and, and, and have people just say, well, it's totally fine. Bible doesn't mention it. Give myself over to it. And then wonder why they struggle when they get married. And so we just say, listen, there's wisdom here. The other thing is no one ever talked about it when I was growing up. And I thought I, I literally was the only, the only one. And then you get, you, know, you get into the locker room or you get into college and you realize, oh, everyone struggles with this? Oh, well, that's interesting. And there's some sort of... I mean, I've even been praying with some guys that are just like, you know, we want to wage war against this. We feel totally defeated by it. So it's a real issue, and it's a needed issue, but it can't just be ripped out of context. That's the point. Because you can train yourself in some really unhealthy ways. Next. If we are creatures of body and spirit, and we can sexually satisfy our body, can't we then sexually satisfy our soul as well? Isn't sharing your heart with no inhibition also a sexual impurity? Does it not also tear us apart to give ourselves spiritually to one another or many and then wonder why we feel so empty? I feel empty, but I'm a virgin. It's because I've given my heart. What do I do? It's so deceiving. That is a brilliant question. You think there's something to that? What do you think? Is it possible to buy? See, the problem with pornography isn't that it's too sexual. It's not sexual enough. Do you hear that? Because sex isn't just what you do with your genitals. Sex is what you do with your heart and your mind, your time and your energy. Sexual energy is much bigger than just intercourse energy. Sexual energy is, is central to human energy. I mean, the idea, and she's on, I'm guessing she's a she. I'm, I think she's on to something when she says that so often in our rush to avoid physical intimacy, we just share our hearts and we have the rush of kind of emotional intimacy. So how many people have you either been or heard of? You meet somebody, and for the next four weeks, you're up until three in the morning every night, sharing every intimate detail of your lives. And then a month later, you're broken up, and you feel, I don't know, deceived. 
See, there's something to be said. If you want to know how to date well, it's really, really easy. It just, there's three ingredients to dating well. Are you ready? Time, restraint, and other people. Take your time. Don't rush into the sexual aspects of the relationship and then include other people in your dating. I mean, really, if you want to run it into the ground, go for it. You know how to do that already. But if you want to date successfully, it's really, really simple. Limit yourself. Guard your heart. Make him earn it. Seriously. Guys are great wooers. And then we turn into our real selves after you have been wooed. So, is there a way out of that? Absolutely. Understand, of course. And again, I'm no relational counselor. There are people here who answer this much better than me. But I think the way that you share life with people, especially as a single person, is incredibly important for just that reason. So can it be redeemed? Of course. But you can have lots of fun and get to know somebody really, really deeply without just going alone. I mean, have you ever been around people who date and then if you're their friend, you don't see them? for six months until they break up and then you see them as they're weeping on the, until they find somebody new and then you don't see them again. Right, does anyone else find that annoying? Is that you? Right, so hey, just include people. And you know what? The, you may hate your parents and think they're insane, but they actually will have wisdom sometimes if you dare to listen. Next. Oh, yes, okay. We're talking about this relationship with Jesus like a marriage of sex is a natural progression of intimacy with the other in marriage. How does one move past the imagery and weirdness of the sexual part of the relationship when in marriage to Jesus? Oh, that's such a good question. Okay, to be clear, the part of marriage that is used as an analogy is the covenant of marriage, not the sexual part of marriage. Can I get an amen? Okay, so it's not that two people have sex that's the reason that marriage is used as an analog. It's because marriage is a human covenant that most embodies the kind of covenant God wants with us. Does that make sense? So there isn't any weirdness about sexual stuff with Jesus. Although I will say, I would like some worship songs that don't sound like I'm dating Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm just saying as a dude... I'd like some songs that say, hey, Jesus, let's go mountain climbing or something, you know? I mean, that's just me. Jesus, let's go fishing. So, so I think appropriately, we have, we have very romantic sounding songs to Jesus. I just, I think there are some of us that feel really weird about that and have to say, okay, so it's the covenant part, not the sexual part, but there is the passion part that, that marriage captures that Jesus wants to capture too. When he talks about pursuing us, when he talks about loving us and never leaving us or forsaking us or going to uh, his father's house to build a place for us, all of that is image borrowed straight from marriage because of the passion of a man for a woman is the passion that Jesus has for his bride. And, and we don't sexualize that. We just simply, it's the best, if you're going to, in human terms, talk about the relationship God has, that's the best analogy we've got. Great question. A couple more? You guys still out there? Yeah, okay. All right. 
I'm a single woman in my mid-20s, and I know that I have my whole life still to live, but how do I stay happy being single when all my friends are coupled up or engaged or married? How can I want a man in a godly way? That is a fantastic question. Okay, first of all, what are you laughing at? My over-affirmation of that question, is that what you're laughing at? That's a great question. Because all this talk of marriage and sex, and so you're sitting here and you're going, okay, well, that's not the season I'm in, so what do I do? So, a couple of thoughts. Number one, Jesus radically overturns the ancient view of singleness by being single in a culture that diminished single people and pushed them to the margins. In other words, Jesus could have come, had a marriage, had children. Maybe he did, according to the Da Vinci Code. Who knows? I mean, that certainly (laughs) sounded right. (sighs) If you're worried, no, that's the reason it's in the fiction section. But Jesus came as a single guy. Paul even argues in 1 Corinthians 7, hey, I wish you would remain as I am, single. In fact, he says it so brilliantly. He says, hey, if you've married, you've not sinned. Oh, well, thanks, Paul. Glad, glad to hear that. He said, but I wish you were like me because there's only one promise given to married people. In marriage, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you will have trouble. And married people, is that true? That's true. So we don't want to over-romanticize marriage, but we don't want to under-romanticize it either. We just want to say, listen, Jesus does something revolutionary for his day, and he invites people to be single for the kingdom's sake. Now, you sound like somebody who's single and you want to be married. That is an awesome, wonderful thing. Your waiting for the right man is a testimony and a witness to the reality of the risen Lord Jesus. Why? Because you are subsuming your desire for a husband under something bigger, namely to follow Jesus well. So how do you godly want a husband? You pray, you seek. I think there is, I I have no problem. My wife asked me out, by the way, just for the record. And I'm all for that, okay? Because some of the guys here are cowards. Can I get an amen from the sisters? I was that man. And so sweet wifey just called and said, hey, I think, you know, you're from Ohio. I'm from Michigan. It'd be fun if we hung out. I said, yeah, it would, actually. So singleness can be just as missional as marriedness. Singleness, and here's the deal. As a church, as the church, we have to repent of trying to hook all these single people up. And simply say, listen, if you're single, you have a great gift. And that's the way Paul talks about it. There, are, there is a great gift of being single. And you should use that time redemptively and not allow it to define you. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a huge, terribly huge fan of singles groups. Because I just think it, it, it splits people out according to marital status. And I don't see Jesus doing that. I just see the family of God, single people and married people are all welcome. And so if you're here and you're single and you want to be married, hallelujah, pursue that, ask God for that. But your refusing to settle is a powerful witness to the world about the reality of Jesus. Because you're actually denying yourself 
something that you want for the sake of doing it right. And so you are to be commended. We can talk more about that if you'd like. Next. My sister and her girlfriend live together and are planning on having a baby uh, through IVF in vitro. I'm excited to be an auntie, but at the same time, I'm struggling with the thought that I might be agreeing with their choice to be a lesbian. How do I support my sister knowing this is not what he, and I'm assuming that's God, wants for her? Okay, get ready to disagree with me, all right? How should a family member support another family member who is making unwise decisions? Love them. Be an auntie. Love them. All right, now, there is a time and a place for the expression of truth, but I don't read the Bible and it says, before you love people, you have to tell them you disagree. I don't, I don't know that verse anywhere. I don't know that verse. And so, my encouragement is to be an auntie, to love and support, and if you're ever invited to speak to the issue, to say, you know, I'm not quite sure this is the best environment, but I love you, I'm for you, and I will help raise this child. Now you may say, well, that's just, that's just capitulating. You gotta, you gotta be strong with them. You gotta be firm with them. And I just go, ah, I have yet, and you may disagree with this, I have yet to meet, well, I shouldn't say it. No, no, I shouldn't say it. This, 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 isn't, this isn't the right way to say it. In my conversations with folks who are either embracing or struggling in the gay community, you have to distinguish between symptom and root. To me, when we make sexual behavior the root issue, we miss what's really going on. And so my encouragement to you is understanding what the ideal is, is to still love and serve and bless and pray for your sister. And to be an auntie and to walk in the messiness of that. Because love is horribly messy. But I would encourage you not to abandon and not to just cut off relationship. I don't think that serves a... Now, there are times it could serve a redemptive purpose in some very extreme situations, but it doesn't seem like this is one of them. Now, some of you may disagree. Hallelujah. You can talk to her afterwards. (laughs) Next. My husband wants a threesome. What does the Bible say about that? Okay, words of grace. Words of grace. Um... Well, the Bible would call that adultery, just to be clear. Um, If your spouse requires external sexual stimulation for fulfillment in your relationship, may I gently suggest that you've got bigger issues going on than simply wanting a threesome. Um, I think the scriptures would say, Uh, That would be adultery, that would be impurity, that would be immorality, and that would be a violation of the sacredness of the one man, one woman covenant that you made together. And then I would question why it is that your husband wants this. Is it because he's immersed in porn? Is it because he's immersed in lust and sexual immorality? And that that has to be dealt with. But if I were a wife hearing that a husband wanted a threesome, I would be uh, hurt very deeply by that. 
that is, uh, that is a violation, absolutely, of the sacred nature of the covenant you've made. I, so, God bless you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And if you're the husband, you need to repent of that. You just do. That's not appropriate. And if your wife isn't worth repenting of that, well, then we got a bigger conversation to have. Next. I have a friend who says he believes in Jesus but identifies as gay. How should I respond to him? I have a friend who believes in Jesus and uh, is living in outright adultery. I have a friend who believes in Jesus and is on their third marriage. I have a friend who believes in Jesus and is addicted to pornography. I have a friend who believes in Jesus and cheats on his taxes. I have a friend who believes in Jesus and lives in outright premarital sexual sin. How do I treat them? How do I treat them? I mean, if, if I'm close to the person and have the opportunity to speak, and because they've identified themselves as a Christian, I feel more permission to have a conversation. If somebody doesn't identify themselves as a Christian, I'm not going to go banging away <laughs> at their behavior using the Bible as an authority. But if somebody says, hey, I'm a Christian and I think the gay lifestyle is okay, I've had tons of these conversations the worst thing you can do is start calling names. I would simply say, well, why do you think that? How would you respond to this passage or this passage? And believe me, there are tons of scholars out there who argue that what looks to be very clear teaching on sexuality isn't so clear. And so if you want ammo to say that the gay lifestyle is just fine, you can go find it. Now, I totally disagree with it, and I think it's twisting some things to get there. But there are people who say they love Jesus who identify themselves that way. I'm not going to sit and judge their salvation. We're all in process. But I am like I would anybody else walk with them in grace and truth. Right? This is how I treat everybody. So if I have a friend who has an anger problem and I'm in deep enough relationship with him, I'd say, hey, what's sitting behind the anger that I'm seeing in you? I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to throw stones at them. But as a concerned friend, I'm going to bring it up. So I have friends in my life who are wrestling through this issue. And when we have conversations, they disagree with some of the things I say. Okay. I'm not their savior. So I just say, hey, here's how I see it, bro. How do you see it? Well, I see it this way. Okay, but I, think, I don't think that argument's a great one. Well, I find it really compelling. Well, I think you're biased towards finding it compelling. Well, I think you're biased towards finding it not compelling. Right? And you go back and forth. But what's beautiful about that relationship? What's beautiful about it? We're talking. You didn't just shut the relationship down by saying, well, you're gay, I can't be your friend. I mean, how lame is that? We don't do that with anything else. So love, listen, serve, speak. The way you treat all your other friends that are screw-ups, right? Now some of you think, no, 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 but this is different. There's an agenda here and it's getting forced on us. We're being pushed. I get that we're citizens and we have a right. But my goodness, the Bible is so crystal clear on how it is that you're to treat people. You can't forsake that in the midst of all of this discussion. You just can't. You cannot violate how Jesus loves people in the name of Jesus and call that Jesus' work. 
You can't do it. You do Jesus' work, Jesus' way, end of story. And if you're not doing it Jesus' way, then you're not doing Jesus' work. I mean, that's just the way it is. Sorry, I get a little fired up. (laughs) One more. I have cheated on my husband, and as a result, we got divorced. Am I not allowed to get remarried? Oh, my goodness. (sighs) I'd need a whole teaching on this. I really would. Um... I cheated on my husband, we got divorced. I would have a whole bunch of questions. And not that I'm some arbiter, but if you came to me, so let's just play this out. Let's say you came to me and said, hey, would you do my wedding? And I'd say, okay, well, tell me about, tell me about this new guy. Oh, yeah, I just met him and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, well, you know, were you married before? Yep. How'd that go? Well, I cheated on him. Oh, okay. You got divorced. Well, who initiated the divorce? Did you try to reconcile? Were you filled with repentance? Were you a Christian at the time? How long was the affair? Did you come forward or were you caught? Did you want to get out or did you work to stay married? Have you done any healing? Have you done any counseling? Have you made any attempt to reconcile with your first husband? If the answer to that is no, I would not marry you. You can go to the courthouse and get a certificate I would, I think the scriptures in that case would say remarriage would not be an option. I think there are some instances where you sinned greatly, you've repented, you tried to reconcile, you da 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 I'd at least be open to thinking about it. There's a big debate in Christian circles that goes, and, and some people think you get divorced, if you get divorced for any reason, you can't get remarried. There's another option that says, if you get divorced, for certain reasons, you can get remarried. And then there's another option that says, well, marriage is a creation ordinance. It's God's desire that anyone be married. So if you're just sorry for the sin committed previously, you can get remarried, no problem. I'm in the second camp of those. I think that because we're a sexually broken and divorce-happy culture, there are some things we do to work repentance before we automatically bless a remarriage. And in some cases I wouldn't, and in some cases I'd think about it. Ah, it's not a great answer, but here's the reason I can't give you one. I'd want to take an hour to go through all the text because our conversations on divorce are much different when you hear Jesus talk about it than what we normally think. There's more going on there that's really, really fascinating and really convicting for a lot of us, but also hopeful. So if that is nebulous enough, we'll do one more because I don't want to end on that one. <laughs> so here's the deal. By the way, if you, for, for, the, for the, the person that wrote that in, if you want to talk about that more, I'd love to talk to you about it. I don't, I don't want you just to hear a bland answer to a text question. I, so don't be afraid to say, hey, I, I texted that in and I'd love to know what you think. And again, I, I'm no perfect person. I just, I don't know how to answer without more context, I guess, is what I'm saying. Next one. Last one. If we're sexual as part of our nature, then why does it cease when we get to heaven? Oh, can we do a different one? (laughs) So, so Jesus seems to say, 
that we won't be given in marriage. And it's this, it's this, he's in this dialogue with Sadducees. And the Sadducees try to trick him into a question. And they say, well, if a woman marries this guy and then this brother, this brother, this brother, who, whose is she at the resurrection? Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and they didn't, I mean, so they're asking a bigger question. And Jesus says, well, we'll kind of be like the angels. We won't be given in marriage. Now, that doesn't say we're not male and female, by the way. So I think we're still gendered. My wife is totally heartbroken by that passage and insists that we will be married in heaven. (laughs) To be honest, I haven't the faintest clue. I don't have the foggiest idea. Here's what I know about the heavens. That's the first stop on a round-trip journey back to earth. Okay, we've talked about this before. You don't spend forever in heaven. You spend forever on a new earth. You also get a new body, a resurrected body. It's a human body, but it's fueled not by sin and decay, but fueled by the Spirit. In other words, it's, it's imperishable in Paul's language. So evidently, there's no more pain, suffering, dying, disease, right? And that'll be awesome. And the glimpses we get of life in the new heavens and the new earth are of doing very human things. So I happen to think you take the shadow lands, as C.S. Lewis called them, subtract guilt, shame, fear, calories, death, the whole thing. (laughs) You add seeing Jesus face to face and living in the company of billions of saints, and that's what you end up doing forever. And that, to me, sounds pretty epic. All right, so, standard disclaimer. I always feel horrible. In Q&A, I feel horrible. I hope that I have done a good job of reflecting the grace and truth of Jesus tonight. That is my prayer utterly and absolutely. And to the degree I have not, I apologize. That is absolutely what I hope to do. But the best thing I can encourage you to do, if you're here and you're not sure about this whole thing, is just pick up one of the Gospels and read it. Pick up the book of Luke and just start reading it. Because there is no substitute for how beautiful and radical this guy turns out to be. So stand up if you would. I want to pray over you. We have, as always, prayer teams and care teams that will gather around the front and to this side to pray over and bless you. Next week, we'll have Tim and Nori Mulehoff here. The week after that, we'll do almost all Q&A. The week after that, we will do a healing service. All right? So, hold out your hands, if you would. Lord Jesus, would you speak words of truth to those who are deceived and words of grace to those who are broken? Would you bring light where there is darkness? Would you bring truth where there are lies? Would you bring freedom where there is slavery? Would you bring conviction where there is rebellion? And would you bring hope where there is despair? Would you breathe into my brothers and sisters the ongoing and everlasting possibility of redemption even for them? That none of us is righteous, not one, and yet all can be made alive in Christ. And so God, help us to walk in grace and truth. And as Aaron, the priest of Israel, prayed over the people of Israel for generations, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. 
Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast, and now support us on Patreon at patreon.com/voxpodcast.